Hello, and welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I'm Pastor Greg Miller, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit NHF Church and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoyed this message. Chuck Swindoll said he had a close friend who sent him a funny story about a couple who had been married a long time. The wife awakens in the middle of the night, discovers her husband has gotten out of bed. She gets worried about him. So she puts on her robe, her slippers. She walks downstairs to find him. The guy is sitting all by himself at the kitchen table with a hot cup of coffee. He's staring at the wall, blinking through tears. And she says, what's the matter, dear? He shakes his head. Words don't come easy. So she asks again, why are you down here at this time of night? What is going on? He looks up from his cup of coffee. He glances at her, and then he says, you remember 20 years ago when we were dating, and you were only 16? And she says, yes, of course I remember. He pauses. Words do not come easily. Well, he says, do you remember when your father saw us in the car, and we were smooching? And he got so mad, he walked out to that car, stuck a pistol in my face, and said, any boy who kisses my daughter like that's going to marry her. Either you marry her or I'm sending you to jail for the next 20 years. Do you remember that? And she said, yeah, I remember that. And he wipes the tears away, and he says, I just realized I would have gotten out today. (laughs) Ouch, ouch. We dream about the wedding, and then we get married, and we dream about, man, the good old days, right? Well, we're on marriage, so I figured, well, let's, let's have a little lighthearted, and hopefully that's not necessarily you at this point in your marriage, but we're going to look at marriage, and we have to look at marriage in light of really eternity, the big picture of marriage, because it's really about the gospel message, and that's what marriage is, but it's the big picture of marriage we tend to look at very specific and very narrowly, but when we can look at it in a broad term first, and what's the big picture of it? And then we narrow into where are we at within that scope. Then we have a greater idea of the significance and what it means to be married. And you don't end up 20 years later saying, man, I could get out of jail today. And so if we look at marriage in light of eternity, that's the big picture. Because one day you and I will pass from this earth and we spend eternity in one of two places, Scripture says, heaven or hell. And so there's an eternity at stake. And while you're here on this earth, while you live and breathe, you have an opportunity to live in such a way to come to faith in Christ and either make your way towards heaven or the vice versa. But marriage is designed a little bit uniquely, a little bit differently. And if we think about eternity and eternity at stake and what people are seeing and watching, it makes a little bit of a difference. So 1 Corinthians 7, if we pause here, we'll be in Ephesians 5. But 1 Corinthians 7, I mentioned last week on this, it's an awesome chapter, too much in there. And when we go to Corinthians at some point in the future, we'll spend a couple of weeks on this text. But Paul is saying he's writing to the church in Corinth, the same guy he wrote Ephesians, and you'll get why I'm going here in just a moment. And he writes this chapter to answer some questions about marriage because the church has them. They're in a sex-saturated culture. 
very similar to ours today. And so they had questions of how do we live, how do we navigate as believers in Christ and the culture that we live in? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? And what about marriage, this whole hoopla of husband and wife? And he says this, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so they asked him a question and he's responding, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he goes further in verse six. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God and one of one kind and one of another. Meaning we're all unique, we're all different, we all have gifts, and some have the gift of singleness or seasons of life where you are single. And Paul, when he's writing this letter, is single. He doesn't have a wife. And so because of that, he's able to streamline and focus and squeeze 25 hours and a 24-hour day because it's all about him. And he's able to focus his attention on God. And he's saying, look, I wish that you wouldn't be tempted to have sex because then you could be single and you'd be great. But the temptation is there. And sex is good. And so because of that, you should have a spouse. Why? So you don't lend yourself and you don't give the devil a foothold. You run, you can go into marriage. And he says this, a concession, not a command, is that I wish you could all be single because then you could focus your attention always on God. And he says this in verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. There was the issue in the church of, well, my spouse is is not a Christian, so can I just divorce them because there's this cute person in church? And he's like, no, no, if you're married, you stay with them because if they choose to. Now, if they leave, that's a different story. But he's saying, don't, that should not be the case, church. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my role in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised, meaning you were Jewish? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek it. His point is God has called you maybe to marriage. Great. Enjoy it. Thrive in it. Those he calls maybe single for a season. Great. Enjoy it. Thrive. Maybe you find yourself later in life coming to know Christ and your spouse hasn't. And they're saying, oh, I'm cool with it. We're still going to. Great. Stay together. And he's calling the church and he's calling them to be specific. But here's where he gets his opinion and he shares this opinion to them. Verse 25, chapter 7, concerning the betrothed, those that are engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment, his opinion, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek one. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Now that's nice to know. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. That's good. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And that's where he comes down to the nitty-gritty of marriage isn't bad. Marriage is great and awesome and wonderful. The truth of the matter is when you get married, you're putting one sinner and two sinner together, and now you've got like this awesome mega sinner, right? Whose side of the bed are we sleeping on? Who gets the closet? Who gets the bathroom? Which way do you put the toilet paper on the roll, right? Backwards, front, I don't know. You start to have preferences, and then you start to have your wife wants this, your husband wants this, and you've got these preferences, and he's saying your interests are just going to be a little bit divided at times. You can't focus purely on what maybe God has called you at the moment, 
In verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from those anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, if he's a follower of Jesus, how to please him. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And his point is that marriage is great and wonderful. I wish you could all be single like me, but that's not everybody's calling. And because of that, you can pursue marriage and go after marriage, but you've got to have a framework of what is the point of marriage. And you may find yourself in a season where you're single. Embrace it. We tend to say, well, I've got to find a spouse. I've got to get married. Culture will sometimes drag that out of, especially for you women, like you've got to get married right away. It's like, no, you can enjoy life. Sometimes you get married, we have kids right away. No, you can enjoy life. There's no right or wrong. He's saying, now listen, your interest, the reality is when you get married, you consider the other person, Right? You look at your spouse and you say, what are their interests? What are their likes? How do I achieve those? So vice versa, your spouse looks at you and says, hey, I've got to please him or her. I've got to go in. And so with that context, your interests go from it's all about Jesus all the time to now I've got a spouse and now I have to work within that framework of how do I engage them? How do I show love? My interests are divided. Not a bad thing. And we tend to think, well, God first, family second. That's a stupid thing to do. Because when you do that and you say, what, what? God should be, no, God should be not first when you're married. He should be at the center. Because he's at the center, well, then he's going into your marriage. He's like that hub to your marriage, to your kids, to your job, to your relationships. When you're single, great, he can be first and he can be your gung-ho and you can run hard and run fast. Prior to getting married, I did squeeze 25 hours and 24-hour days. I ran hard. I was out four or five nights a week. Why? I'm single. I could. I get married and I realize I can't do that anymore. I have kids. I realize I can't do that anymore either. Why? Because there is a cost. My kids don't get to know me. My wife doesn't know who I am. And all of a sudden, over time, she feels ostracized because I keep running hard after things I want without including and bringing her. And marriage sometimes is, it's a marathon, which means it's not about getting everything. It's pacing. What pace are we running? What season of life do we find ourselves in and realize you will get there, but sometimes it's purely survival and that's okay. Well, I'm not reading all the leadership books. I'm not going hard. It's like, well, what season are you in? Do you have little kids? Well, you got through the day. Job well done. I've cleaned the kitchen six times. I've picked up the living room five times and it's still a disaster zone. You survived. Job well done. You put your kids to bed. You listen to VeggieTales nonstop. I can quote you all sorts of songs right now. I'm in that season. The reality is it's pace. And if we look at marriage in light of eternity, and what's the point of marriage? It's not about the kids. It is not about the sex, though that's a perk of marriage, absolutely, which is why outside of marriage, it's not bad. It's tempting. It's good because it is. It's the long-term fruit that it bears that is the issue. So within marriage, it's one of the glues that helps hold the marriage together. I'll never forget in youth group, I had a leader who would teach from time to time. And so when we did the sex talk, I always had him up here because I was the young guy who had just either been married or wasn't married yet. I'm like, Mike, you can do this. You've been around the block. You're 40-something. You're old. And so he was great. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm 35. I'm getting there. 36. <laughs> So he took two solo cups, and he goes, you know, he goes, this is what God intended. He took a red cup, and he took a pink cup, 
And he said, or blue and pink. And he goes, this is the design, blue guys, pink. He goes, what we tend to do and what God intended is he cut the blue cup in half and he then took the pink cup and then he siliconed it on both sides and stuck them together. And he said in marriage, and he put lighter fluid in and he lit the fire and the flames burning. The kids like, this is awesome. And youth group were lighting church on fire. He's like, in marriage, this is what it's designed. It's a flame that helps hold it. But in culture, what have we done? We've taken the blue cup and we've cut it in half. And then we attach one pink cup and another pink cup. And then you light it with fire, lighter fluid. And then you, where's the flames? It's going to go everywhere. And so outside of marriage, it's detrimental and it hurts. It may not be right away. It may not be next month, next year. But eventually it'll catch up. And you bring all of that into a marriage. But inside the marriage, when sex is there, it's beautiful. And the beautiful thing is God says, you're not defined by the past. Yeah, you got to deal with that. But when you come to know Christ, you're a new creation. And so you start doing the next right thing today. And some of you might be like, man, I am already toasted. No, you're not. Because God has got a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, many more chances. It's about going in a healthy direction and moving into that direction. And Paul says, look, marriage isn't bad. Marriage isn't wrong. It's just going to be difficult and so we need to look at marriage doesn't fix everything. I'm just going to marry this person and all my problems are going to go away. Wrong. Your problems just got magnified. I will have a kid. That'll fix it. No, it won't. That's going to get it even more magnified. And so you have to look at marriage. What is the point of it? Why do we engage with it? Why do we desire it? And one of probably my favorite marriage books is called You and Me Forever, Marriage in Light of Eternity. That's the point. Francis Chan writes it with his wife, Lisa. And in each chapter, they each share his point of view and hers. And as we look at marriage in light of eternity, he writes this, while Jesus was on earth, he revealed God to the world. But now he has formed the church, given us his mission and empowered us through the Holy Spirit. It's our job to reveal God to the world through the way we live together. In fact, Jesus said that the unity of his followers would confirm to the world that he, sent, he was sent by God. Displaying God to the world is the purpose of the church, and it's also the purpose of marriage. People should see that the way I serve my wife and get a glimpse of the humility that Christ shows. Anyone who sees Lisa joyfully following my lead should understand more deeply what it means for the church to follow Jesus out of their respect and trust for him. God created marriage to be a picture that displays Christ to the world. And my point in all of this is to insist that there's more at stake in your marriage than just your marriage. The beauty of the gospel is at stake. And when you discover and you research marriage, it's a beautiful thing that it's the, really, it's the whole gospel. And what is the gospel? It's Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on display for the world to look at and say, wow, what is that? Why is that, that they do those things and lead that way? I want what they have. What is it? And it's supposed to imitate and mimic the gospel. And we have to view that because the world in which we live in has a few false narratives about marriage. One of those being you're going to find the perfect mate, right? You have to find the one. You know there's almost 8 billion or over 8 billion people at this point in the planet? To find the one, no, you have likes and dislikes, and God has given you a clear conscience and wisdom and discernment to find a mate. Do you know back in the day, you didn't get to pick at all. You were just lined up, and that's what it was. Love is a feeling. Yes, there are those. It is also a choice to choose to love someone and give them what they need, even when you may not receive what you get or what you need. 
And so that's one of the false narratives that our culture around that you got to find the one. The other one is that the husbands lead and the wives will just follow right along, right? Because she's a doormat. Wrong. But culture would say, well, you're the man of the house. You're supposed to wear the pants, all that's fun stuff. Truly, it's about the gospel. And marriage in light of eternity is that my marriage is a reflection of Jesus, and it should point people to Jesus so that in my marriage, someone might actually come to know Christ by watching me and Alicia, how we interact, how we parent, how we go through disagreements, how we go through issues and grief and all of that. And likewise, your marriage is the same. So we jump back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's a fun word, right? Submit. But we have to go with context. So you need to jump back into chapter 5, verse 15, and read that section first. Because Paul doesn't just start with marriage. He starts first somewhere else. In verse 20, he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, here's the key. You can circle, highlight, underline this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So his point in this verses prior to this is that mutually, brothers and sisters in Christ, which means if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we are brothers or sisters in Christ, we're to mutually submit to one another. Meaning it's not about what I want, it's how do I serve you. Gospel humility is that. It's not thinking less of me or less of myself. It's just thinking about myself less and trying to ask you, who are you? What are you interested in? How do I mutually serve you? How do you do the vice versa? So together as brothers and sisters in Jesus, in the church, with unity, we're to mutually serve one another. If I get greater at the cost of you or I get what I want at your cost, that's not good. It's mutual. It's willing to compromise. It's willing to listen to the other's point of view to see where can we find common ground? Where can we listen to mutually encourage out of reverence for Christ? Because Jesus said, you'll know my disciples by their love for one another. So even if we don't agree on some things, we agree on the majors and we look not to get ahead at the cost of the other. And he says, mutually submission, wives within that context are to submit mutual submission to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So you want the keys to a great marriage or this. Part of it is the submission side, which sounds very negative and bad because that word has become dirty in our culture and dirty in the world of, no, you shouldn't submit, you should stand up. Within the context of marriage, it's a beautiful thing because it's calling the men out to rise up to step up in all areas. You read Genesis chapter one, you read about creation, you read Genesis two, you read that God says there was one thing wrong with all of creation and that was man was alone. We needed women. Why? We live longer. It's proven that if you're married, you guys, we live like seven years longer. It wasn't good that man was alone. And so God creates a helpmate, not out of the backside, the back straps, out of the rib, the side. As a companion, as a helpmate, to Adam, to work harmoniously together. What happened? Sin. Read Genesis 3, and Eve is tempted to sin, to distort what God has said. And so she trusts the serpent. She has a little doubt. She eats from the tree. And Adam, for the record, as I've mentioned before, is standing like right there. She turns, it says, and gave it to him, which means he wasn't a mile away and didn't know what fruit he was eating. He knew, and he ate it. Looked good. Sin enters. 
when the curse happens and God says there's specific issues now in the curse. And if we were to pause here and go back to Genesis 3, the very first book in the Bible, and we will do a text on Genesis at some point here in the future. But if you were to go to Genesis 3, you read about this curse that he's left on you and me that's the cause of some of these root things. And he goes this, to the woman he said in verse 16, chapter 3, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Okay, there you go. There's where it all stems from. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In that regard, he's saying, look, wives, when you get married, there's going to be times where you want to usurp or you want to jump in and fix it and make it right. And for the record, guys, we are not blameless in any of that. He said in verse 17 to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree for which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. There's the thing called a passive male where it's natural almost for us as men sometimes to say, well, she'll take care of that. She'll fix that. And I can step back, sit on a recliner and eat or do what I want. I can do my hobbies. That's a natural tendency of the byproduct of the sin nature within all of us men is that it's easier sometimes to just punt and say, yeah, you make that call. Yeah, because it's easy. It's easy. And her natural tendency at times is going to be to usurp and to drive it. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. Within the confines of marriage, Paul is wives, there's this mutual submission and the role to not just follow blindly the male and the husband. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body is himself its savior. And he goes to this point, submission, it's mutual. And the definition regards this, it says the action or act of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person, to the will, willing to follow but mutually, and we'll get here in just a moment. One commentator writes, submission falls on three groups, wives, children, slaves. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents, slaves to obey their masters. On the other hand, instead of being told to submit, husbands are told to love their wives, parents not to exasperate your children, and masters are to treat their slaves fairly. So we see a call to spirit-filled mutual submission beginning with wifely submission. And it starts there in the house of modeling this. And the keys to this are, one is this, wives, respect your husband, even when he doesn't deserve it. And it goes into this Ephesians, a great book called Love and Respect. And it talks about this, that guys, we're going to get to ours. Don't worry, I'm going to hammer us in a minute. It's the respect side that guys need. Not all the time, it's not that and only that, but that's a big deal. And it's respecting and hearing and listening even when he doesn't deserve it. Now, I'm not talking, let me pause. I'm not talking with abuse. I'm not talking physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal. That is not respectful at any point or at any time. So let's be that clear as well, that the respect given is not when it is under those conditions or circumstances, period. But it is a respect given to him and giving him sometimes the benefit of the doubt that maybe he didn't mean all of these things within the context of abuse. No, it's not okay. Never has, never will, because it's contrary to who God is. It's contrary to God's design. And you can read all about how Jesus was probably the most empowering person towards women throughout all the gospels. And his interaction with them is a model to us as men of how we are to interact. So how do you respect your husband even when he doesn't deserve it? First and foremost, focus your relationship on the Lord first. 
Sometimes that gets out of whack. Sometimes that's just out of line, and it's how do we then engage it? Again, from the book, Lisa, Lisa writes this, Francis' wife. She goes this, Sometimes I expect to receive certain feelings of worth from my husband. I want to be lifted up and adored and made to feel wanted. These aren't necessarily bad things, but now and then the Lord gently reminds me, I'm the one who gives you worth. I'm the one who perfectly meets your needs. Come to me to be lifted up and sometimes even brought low because then you won't place unnecessary burdens on your husband. When something feels off between Francis and me, I have learned to examine my walk with God first. Far too many wives are looking to their husbands to meet needs they simply can't meet and vice versa. And far too many marriages are riddled with unrealistic, ungodly expectation. God promises to meet all your needs. He promises never to leave you. He promises that nothing can separate you from his love and that no one can snatch you out of his hand. If we want our marriages to be healthy, we have to first believe God's promises and look to him before we look to our spouses. It's not that we hide our needs and our struggles from our husbands. It's simply that a matter of where to start. Our husbands will be huge failures if we expect them to be God. But if we expect God to be God, then our husbands can excel at being husbands. One day as we were driving back from the village on a missions trip, I saw the most amazing red tree perched on a hill. It had a thick and sturdy trunk with gorgeous full branches of a beautiful shade of green. I felt the Lord say, this is what a strong woman looks like. A strong woman has waited patiently while her roots grow down deep into the word of God. And over time, she becomes unshakable in her faith. She starts bearing fruit naturally and is full of life. People are attracted to her strength and growth and may find rest and peace as they lean on her. When storms and trials come, as they always do, they will not be able to take her down. A few branches may be lost or pruned away, but in their place comes new growth and new life. And this is what I long to be, a strong woman who is anchored in God's promises. But it starts by setting down your roots in God's word. It's starting first to focus on that relationship, even when things are going in turmoil and chaos. The second part is pray for your husband. We need it desperately. We cannot thrive. We cannot do what we're called to do unless you are praying for us. Who else is doing that on our behalf? Who else is leaning in? You want to soften a man's heart? You start praying for it. You want to see life change? You start praying for him. Sometimes you may not say what I'm seeing, nothing. And the reality is that more you pray, the more God gets to work on both your heart, but also his. And I've seen this personally in my own family dynamics of seeing heart change happen because a spouse, the wife, takes on and says, I'm going to focus on what I can, which is my relationship with God, and I'm just going to lift him up every day. And I can tell you a year later, I never thought I would see some of the things that I'm seeing from him. And it's amazing to see that it took the wife to say, I can't change him, I can't fix him. No, you can't. Wish it was that simple. But you can start with your relationship with God and you can start praying and you start to see change happen, life change. And when you read verse 23, it says, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself savior. Now as a church submits us, the body, submits to Jesus, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, but it's called servant leadership. Jesus' style of leadership wasn't lorded over. It was servant style, meaning when you submit, when you follow, there's a servant heart, men, that it should be towards our wives. Yes, it rests and falls with us. Yes, do you realize that when males and when husbands attend church, that your children, if they come with you, are like 95% willing to stay with the church. You realize it's that high, and when you drop off, it goes down in like 20%. Men, you matter more than you may think. 
And the verse in here, it's the servant leadership. The husband has authority, yes, in a servant-style leadership, not to be used selfishly and not for personal gain. It's not, let me sit back and why don't you make me a sandwich, right? We've heard those jokes, but it's not. It's the servant-style to put her needs above yours. That's what he's calling. And when that case is, how easy is it then for the wife to then follow your leadership, men, if it's a servant style in consideration of what is her needs, what makes her blossom and come to life? You read verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, and in verse 25, husbands, here's our charge, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Ouch and wow. Husbands, you're to love your wife. Your role is to serve her, not in the same sense to be served by her. And what responsibility, what opportunity to model just as Jesus humbled himself and served us, we have the privilege to do the same in our marriages with our wives and to model to our kids, this is what a godly man looks like. This is what you're to do. Mind you, some of you are like, man, I am so far off kilter. That's okay. It's starting today. It's starting tomorrow, day in, day out, long-term faithfulness to pray for them to lift them up. For guys, for us, it involves death to ourselves and daily praying for our wives as well. My goal in my marriage to my wife, Alicia, is to spur her on not to love me more, but to love Jesus. Because if she loves Jesus, that will be a natural byproduct that, guess what? If she loves Jesus, she loves people, so she'll love me. And I want her to blossom into the woman that God has called her to be. So how do I do that? How do I provide the opportunities for her then to be in a position to thrive? At every point, it's consideration of, will this be detrimental? Will this be harmful? And if it is, it should not be for her. But when she's able to thrive and become the woman, then our marriage will flourish and our kids will flourish. It's a neat thing uh, happening. Our, my daughter is three, so she just turned three in September, so she might be three and a half closing in. But Alicia and I will hug at home, and you just see my daughter looks and just, ah, oh, hug me too. And she comes running in because she just feels at ease. And there's something about when you have that marriage, husband and wife, or the kids are just, this is right. Something is, they can't describe it. They can't explain it. We ask, how do you feel? Happy. Okay, hug again, guys. And then she wants in on the hug. But she recognizes even at a young age, they recognize. And as they get older, they recognize. And so husbands, we have a high calling to death to self. My dad's example was always this. And I never heard it till I was later, probably because I would have probably not heard it. But I heard it a few years ago as my dad himself preached on marriage. And I followed the example myself. And it's this. My mom follows my dad and my wife, Alicia, will follow me. At every point, we moved from New York to here. Her home is Homer, New York. And I moved her away from all her family. My home is Pittsburgh, and I had moved to New York. But guys, we're a little different sometimes. And so when my dad left Pittsburgh and he moved with my mom to New York, 
He'd always had this philosophy that my mom is always in on those decisions. Doesn't matter what little, big, she is always in. And he, she knows without a shadow of a doubt that at every point, every decision, she's talking to him. And he's not just blindly making the decision of saying, hey, let me hear your input, okay, and doing the exact opposite, as if her opinion is of little worth or value. But at every point, my dad asks, will this harm my mom? Will this grow my mom? Will this be hurtful? If it's going to grow her, and she might not like it, he still will make the call to go there. And so he did that with New York. He had multiple churches. I've had the same thing, multiple churches. We both played for Clarity, my wife and I, and I'll tell you the story later if you want to hear it. But we look at, will this be helpful? Will this be hurtful? And my dad considered from Pittsburgh to where to go in his final season and before he retired, he looked at and said, there was Green Bay, there was Philly, there was a few other places. He said, would that area, would my wife thrive? Would she be able to find friends and community? Would she be in a position to be who God has called her to be? And so he turned down positions because she would not be able to thrive. He would. He'd have a great platform and, and thousands in the church. And he said, but she would not thrive. She would not be successful. And so he opted to not. And New York was hard because she still left friends and family, but she found new friends. She thrived. She blossomed. And I look the same way with Alicia. Of every decision, when we move, when we buy a house, all right, Alicia, let's talk. Let's get, to the, let's get this out. And I take that counsel into consideration because you read Proverbs 39, and you read about a woman of worth and value. And when you can serve your wife in such a manner as that, she becomes this force really to be reckoned with in a beautiful way. And that's the desire that God has. It's, it's a mutual submission of wives and husbands. Wives, you're to follow the lead. Husbands, your call is to rise up, to step up to the plate, but to serve her, not thinking less of yourself, but just considering at every point, is this hurting her? Is this good for her? Praying for her. Wives, vice versa, praying for your spouse, praying for your husband, as he needs it. He needs wisdom. And he says, look, just as Christ laid down his life, guys, we're to go that far to lay down our life. Sometimes it means sacrificing a career. Sometimes it means saying no to other things because what is best for my family? I could have all of this and I could do all these things, but at what cost? And if Christ is at the center, then everything else will get taken care of. And in due course, you'll reap those rewards. Do you want kids who like you now or do they like you 30 years from now? My parents always said in ministry, we want our kids to have a, we want to be able to talk with them after having served in the church and we want them to not think the church is evil and wrong and hurt by the church. Can't force them to come to know Christ, but we want them and want to live life in such a way that ministry is not the priority, that the job is not, but that they are not either. It is pursuing after Christ. And him at the center means we'll survive the kids, we'll survive each other, because one day the kids leave. Because one day you look in the mirror and you realize, wow, I'm not 18 anymore. Who is this person with me? And if you've done the work day in and day out, cleaning the kitchen a million times, washing the clothes, listening to veggie tales, all these things, in due course, you reap the benefit. In due time, you see the fruit of that. And you look, I look at where I'm at, I'm like, it's not happenstance or coincidence. It's consistency. It's day in and day out saying, yesterday, what did we do? Well, we danced around the living room. We cleaned up the downstairs. We cleaned up the upstairs and the downstairs and the upstairs. I took a nap. My kids took a nap. 
but we did all the just rent. We didn't go anywhere. I didn't finish any projects. I didn't write any books or read any books. I was rum dumb by the end of the day of saying, how am I so tired? Because I danced with my kids. Because I let my wife try to take the kids so that she can do, because that's her love language, to be able to finish projects and do projects. So let me take the kids and let you do that. Serving. It's mutual submission. And the final part you'll have to read under home this week, verse 31 through 33, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Amazing how when you get really old, you've been married 60, 70 years, you tend to look like one another. You finish in other sentences. You leave your father and your mother, meaning your new family is not in-laws. Yes, they're part of it. Yes, the in-laws or the outlaws, I'll review them. Your new one is your spouse, your husband or your wife. That's your family. That's your priority. And sometimes you got to cause some distance. And sometimes you got to do something called boundaries, which we can talk about. But this is a mystery is profound. And he's saying, I'm saying that refers to Christ in the church. It's the gospel at stake in your marriage. It's the gospel on display of how men, you love your wives and wives, how you follow and lead your husband. It matters. People are watching. And people want to see Jesus, and people are ready for, stop putting the celebrity stuff. They just want genuine and authentic. You just be real. You don't have to be flash. You don't have to have all the answers. Consistency. Faithfulness isn't glamorous. It's day in, day out, doing the right thing. What's the next right thing? And sometimes that means just simply praying today. Start doing what you can. Then start doing what's possible. And then you'll be doing the impossible. So may this week you try that. Wives, how do you follow? How do you give respect even when your husband doesn't deserve it? Husbands, how do you love your wife? Your role is to serve her. How can you serve her? Figure out who she is. Go back to those days when you dated. What did you do? You won her over, right? Well, start doing some of that again. I used to write letters, so I should probably write letters again. But it's desiring and knowing the gospel's on display of how I love my wife or how I love my husband. You're going to fail. Just saying, and when you do, you say, Jesus, please help me correct the mistakes I make and keep going after it. Get back up and start again. And you keep pursuing and you keep going because in the end, it is so worth it. Let me pray this morning. Lord God, we are grateful to be gathered here in your name. It is not about us. It is all about you. And so, Lord, may we have the attitude of Christ, the humility of him that, Lord, though he was you, he made himself human in the flesh to know who we are, to suffer and to go through the things that we go through so that he doesn't unknow what we go through, but he knows exactly what we experience, the range of emotions. Lord, and he knows all things, and he has placed us together on this earth to know him and to make him known. And so may we do that this week. Lord, in our own lives, and our own walks with you, we ask that you would allow us to, Lord, just have a humility and a heart and a posture of such to lean on him. That wherever we find ourselves, if we're married this morning, may we start to lift our spouses up day in and day out, whether it's for a minute, five minutes, 30 minutes, maybe they need a whole hour of our time, Lord. Whatever it is, may we give that on a regular basis. May we start to pursue you in our own relationship instead of trying to change our spouses. Lord, for the wives here, would you give them the courage? Would you give them wisdom and discernment on how best to speak up in a way that is honoring and respectful to their husbands, and at the same time to not just be walked over, but to give them courage. 
Lord, help our husbands here to have ears to hear from their wives that maybe that may not be the case in all the marriages, to just humble themselves to listen, and not just to listen, but to ask inquisitive questions about their wives. And would you reveal to us, Lord, as husbands, how do we lay down our life for our wives? How do we let them blossom into who you've called them to be? And how do we serve them? Each and every day, each and every week, what can we do? And may we not just go and forget, but actually go and do something with it. We ask for your blessing this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.